1: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This new podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Wisenthal and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television. What'd you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those that you may have missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Earlier this week, we spoke with Pavlina Chernova, associate professor of economics at Bard College, about a job guarantee program where every American could earn $15 per hour if they want it. Take a listen.
0: The job guarantee is a policy that guarantees work for people who cannot find it. It's as simple as that. We can try to do all sorts of wonderful things to crank up the economy, spur growth, strengthen the public sector. This is all well and good. But at the end of the day, the economy doesn't provide full employment. It doesn't provide jobs for all uh, over the short or long run, except maybe you know by happenstance. And so what the job guarantee essentially is It's a public option for work. It essentially says if if you've been looking and you went to the unemployment office and you searched on monster.com and you searched and you have not been able to find a suitable employment opportunity at at above poverty pay, this is the public option.
3: Pavlina, how do you guarantee that this becomes actually productive work that expands the productive capacity of the nation, creates things that people want as opposed to what people would associate as make work?
0: yes i mean we don't have to reinvent the wheel there are just so many projects that demonstrate the value of direct job creation and we have neglected the public sector for such a long time there are I and mean, i can list you know many many jobs that are needed uh, whether those are green jobs whether those are care jobs um you know whether we're dealing with stormwater runoff i mean there are many jobs that are essential that are low skilled that are uh, labor intensive that need to be done rain or shine And uh, they can absorb people on ongoing basis, on long run basis. So the way I envision it is we basically provide a public service employment option. And we have many programs to look to for success. Um, So I have no doubt that we can create, you know, 10 million extra jobs uh, that are useful. So
4: my my first question would be cost. What's the anticipated cost of this? And would it be only available to those that aren't now in the workforce? Because if we're talking about $15 an hour, two weeks of paid vacation, let's say $10,000 a year benefits, $40,000 a year. We're talking about 25 to 50 million Americans that are earning less than that right now, never mind the ones that aren't in the workforce. I mean, this thing could get really out of control really quickly, Pavlina
0: thanks for the question. I think the, the way to think about costs is first to, to recognize to acknowledge that we are already paying for the enormous costs of unemployment. so this is the be- benchmark scenario. Virtually every social and economic problem we can think of is related in one way or another to unemployment so this is um, already paid for, we're expending enormous resources to deal with the fallout of unemployment, whether it is crime, incarceration, mental health problems, subsidies that we toss here and there and hope to create jobs for all, but they never quite trickle down to the very bottom of the income distribution. So this is all paid for. We've modeled this proposal, and we find that um, in with very conservative estimates, uh, we could expect to estimate uh, to... Um, Uh, the the program is is expected to be about one to one and a half percent of GDP but I will tell you we have not simulated the cost savings from all of these other expenditures that I enumerated you know people who you know go back into the uh, prison system because they have not been able to find employment people who um, are are having mental and health problems uh, because of unemployment so there are many social costs that we have not simulated and I think if we were able to appropriately account for them all, this thing is going to be paid for completely.
3: Uh, Pavlina, real quickly, what about the cost to private businesses that now find themselves competing with the government for labor?
0: Yes, I mean this is uh you know what we are hoping to do is to implement a structural reform in the economy as a whole that creates net new employment opportunities for the chronically unemployed. But by providing a minimum wage law, we essentially, this program essentially serves as the effective minimum wage for the economy. So the private employers will have to respond. And that is, you know, that is an objective of the policy. We, we really don't think that uh, poverty paid private sector employment should be something the economy reproduces or sustains. So it's a matter of how you phase in the program. You know, if you phase it in over a number of years to allow firms to adjust, the way we do with the minimum wage, then, uh, you know, you could minimize the disruption effect on the private sector. But the ultimate goal and objective is to create a floor to all wages in the public and in the private sector that are above poverty wages.
3: And of course, you mentioned that term minimum wage, and I gather that part of the idea here is that by having a public sector guarantee of a job at that minimum wage, it becomes a true minimum wage rather than a minimum wage of essentially zero if you can't find a job.
0: That's exactly right all these minimum wage and living wage ordinances are all great that states and localities are trying to pass but if you can't find a job you really don't benefit from the minimum wage Uh, if there is a public option for work though then uh, you know that that is the minimum that you will receive and so when uh, just going back to the previous question you know wouldn't this suck out so many of the private sector jobs that don't Pay fifteen dollars an hour my answer would be um, no not necessarily it depends how it is phased in because if we do it in the appropriate gradual way the private sector will respond and um, we 've seen this you know happen with minimum wages private firms don't you know like they they will adjust uh, over time and so i don 't expect uh, a very large influx of of employment into the program. I, the goal is to create the employment opportunities that are missing for those who can't find them.
2: We also spoke with Korea Society's senior director Stephen Norper about the long road ahead for North and South Korea after Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong Un's historic meeting
1: it's a long road ahead that's the big catch so it's something to be excited about good for cautious optimism it's something very important to the Korean people there's a lot of enthusiasm uh, as I've heard from Seoul today Uh, so let's see how it plays through
3: just from your perspective how surreal were the images because we're used to these Kim Jong-un photos that are stills Mm -hmm. where he's usually looking at a rocket or something or some factory and then seeing him mill about and chat with people. Just what was your takeaway from that?
1: Well, it was mesmerizing. It certainly grabbed the attention of the South Korean public as well as some of the international community. And you saw someone different. You saw someone more an- animated. He may be more cosmopolitan than people allow. He was a bit self-deprecating. He seemed to have a chemistry with South Korean President Moon Jae-in. This is something different. Young president or young leader in North Korea with an accomplished younger president in South Korea.
2: One community that did not see these images was North Korea. Mm-hmm. And this was not broadcast on the their uh, national television. I'm just wondering, first of all, whether you expect any kind of opening up and reunification of families in North and South Korea as a result of this. And second, does this give Kim Jong-un an upper hand in some ways, some legitimacy that he didn't previously have heading into the negotiations with President Trump?
1: Yeah, well, on the latter point, that's what he's looking for. He wants legitimacy on the global stage. He wants economic easing. He wants a back off on the sanctions so that he can strike at modernization, which is the second part of his byung policy. The first was the weaponry. So he wants to do that to gain viability and survivability. Uh, But uh, it's it's a new stake. He's trying to present himself in a different way than the father and the grandfather. And that's what Moon Jae and the South Korean president picked up on. That's what Donald Trump was applauding today in his tweet about Korea War to end. And that's something that may be in the offing. It is a long road, but ending that war, ending that conflict, replacing the armistice with the treaty is something that at this point, with the new political will, may just happen.
2: All right so it's a long road ahead what what are the next eight, 10, 20 steps that need to be taken. Who reaches out first, or is that all agreed upon at this point and it's just perfunctory?
1: Well, all of this is still a big lead up, Scarlett, to the, the early June meeting, likely early June now, meeting between the U.S. President- But
2: even before we get June. there, um, North Korea and South Korea still need to do more work as well, no?
1: Right, so they'll continue to be in consultation. There's a tremendous amount ahead in terms of, of how you deescalate tension. So it's easing around the DMZ, it's setting up legation, it's uh, legation's representation, representative offices there at the DMZ and it's uh, preparing an exchange back uh, the South Korean leader will visit North Korea so a lot of things in the offing it's a very multifaceted process to try to strike at better confidence and a better easing of tensions
3: There were inter-Korean summits in 2000 and 2007. So how different and how similar is that?
1: Oh, this is starkly different in many ways. This president learned as the chief of staff to the president who met the second time, No mo Yun and the first president, Kim Dae-jung, they were older at the time, and they were meeting with Kim Jong-il, who frankly was toward the end of his life. This is a young North Korean leader meeting with a populous South Korean president. There's a new vibe, and there's been a mind shift, north and south, among the publics. New millennial impact.
3: Just for what it's worth, my favorite chart today, pointing out that 2000-2007 previous market peaks, in case, uh, you know, believe there's ah. some symbolism there, just... As that was you're, you're going to continue
2: the with, the, uh, with the symbolism. I'm just wondering, Moon Jae-in, the South Korean leader, I'm just wondering how popular he is and how popular the moves uh, that he made today are uh, with South Korea.
1: Yeah, so he enjoys about 70% approval rating on the summit process. It's probably actually higher today. There's a lot of enthusiasm in Korea for this today. Uh, but there are opponents. There's a conservative faction, and there are older South Koreans who are concerned that there will be too much given away in this process. But Moon is responding to a general general popular feeling of, hey, we'd want gradual integration. Mm-hmm. And that's where this change in mindset is coming into play.
2: All right. So, denuclearization is what everyone's aiming for here. Maybe I'm jumping ahead. I probably am. But how far away are we from reunification?
1: Oh, so that's way off. And you didn't hear reunification or unification spoken of just explicitly. The idea of ending the conflict, ending the war, moving to a peace regime. Uh, Then denuclearization, top of the U.S. chart, is something that will be a long process, multifaceted. It will be complex, much more. They've watched Libya, meaning the North Koreans, so they're distrustful. And there's a huge trust deficit there between the United States and North Korea. But with South Korea managing that part of the process and the strength of the U.S. South Korean alliance, it's something to go forward with. So uh, a lot going on political, economic and security fronts. And this is the beginning of a process. And if Kim Jong Un and Trump meet, that's the beginning of another process.
2: And Saeed Amin, the founder of Q Macro, who joined us to discuss quant funds and strategies and why there's a tendency for funds who are not quantitative in their original approach, now looking at it.
4: Talk to me about what is actually going on as far as these funds that are using and employing more quantitative strategies. It feels like a buzzword and something to talk about, perhaps at times, rather than actual strategy implications.
5: Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show, first of all. I think there is a tendency for funds who are maybe not traditionally quantitative in their approach to now think about systematic tools for enhancing their returns. I think one aspect of it is to try and get consistency around returns as well. Um, And that could be, for example, looking at traditional quantitative factors like trend following or value strategies um, but also increasingly, I think there's a tendency for them to also to look outside of that area and to examine more alternative data.
3: When you see consistency of returns, does that mean that it's less about hitting the occasional home run to make a big year and more about developing something systematic that's designed to just sort of do well in any market environment?
5: Well, I think that's part of it. Uh, the trick, though, is to try and understand how these various factors come together. Um, so essentially trying to diversify your returns such that hopefully it will be more consistent over time.
4: I mean, trend following, if you're employing that kind of strategy, it has a great time at times. It has, a, has had a really tough time as well. So I can't imagine how that would help you smooth returns in a sense. But go on, you're going to say something. <laughs> Explain.
5: Well, I would say it's not something that you'd run in isolation. OK. So ex- oh, I
4: see. Yeah. yeah. So Overlay. For,
5: so, for example, if you're already long stocks, and long bonds, then trend following might be some way of diversifying your portfolio. But admittedly, it's not going to diversify on every single risk event like we had recently. Well,
3: let's talk about the recent actions because we've seen, for example, long stock and long bond portfolios do very badly during some of these bouts of volatility, both selling off at the same time, which is a little bit unusual and then of course every time we get one of these volatility spikes there's the finger wagging and the blaming of the quant. It's like oh this is just quant driven or this is just yeah. algorithms help us understand it is there a tail wagging the dog aspect where the very where the attempts to sort of beat the market become drivers of the market
5: I think you could argue to some extent, but I, I would say at this stage the amounts of capital going into, for example, risk parity strategies or strategies that target specific levels of risk are probably not the overwhelming dominant factor in, in markets, I would say, this time. How
4: does that differ from any other strategy that looks at their VAR or their value at risk here and adjusts mm. it lower when volatility spikes? What's the difference when you're talking about risk parity versus traditional
5: trading? Well, I would say there's actually a lot of similarities. So if you have a big position on and then volatility spikes, if you're a discretionary trader, then your risk management team will come to you and say, you've got to cut your positions because you've hit your VAR limits. I think it's not just purely something that impacts quants, but it impacts traders more more broadly. Just automates it. Yeah. We've
3: certainly seen a lot of these stories where some legacy fund shop will be like, oh, we're going we're gonna to get into quant now. Yeah. And then you see like they went out and hired 10 PhDs and they put them in a room and they're like, all right, do your quant stuff over there and come up with something. Does that work? Like, is it that simple or does it need to be more holistic and ingrained into yeah. the operations of the entire fund for it to be effective?
5: Well, as, as a quant, I say the first thing is we need light so we need to sit near windows so don't put us in the basement. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't lock you in a yeah, room. Yeah, don't lock us in the room. But I think all of it is about being interactive. So it's about quants working with portfolio managers with traders and it's supposed to be an interactive process so then they kind of guide each other as opposed to the quants coming along saying, do this, do that, and then trying to change everything that way. So it's supposed to be more of an iterative process. And that's, that's what I would say is the most important factor when you want to bring in quants into your trading environment.
4: What's the most important thing that you've done recently when you've been tracking the data and looking at reactions? If we combine some of the alternative data sources that you're looking at here and and perhaps even volatility, can you tie the two together?
5: Yes, I did some uh, recent research looking at Bloomberg News, um, uh, basically Machinery World News, trying to understand, for one thing, uh, volatility around, for example, FOMC meetings, Uh ECB meetings as well. Um, and it's actually quite interesting. If you look at the volume of news around, say, ECB or FOMC, it's actually quite correlated to short-term FX volatility during those events. Right. So could be an additional factor for volatility traders to use.
2: Thanks for listening to our podcast. A reminder to catch our program every weekday at 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Television. From what you miss, this is Scarlett Fu.